Hey, welcome to the StoryWorth podcast. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Krista Baum, co-founder of StoryWorth. On this podcast, we feature true stories written by StoryWorth writers. If you're new to StoryWorth, we help people write their life stories, the big stories and the small ones. Once a week, we send our writers a question to help inspire their writing. They reply to the email with an answer or story that comes to mind. At the end of the year, we print what they've written into a beautiful keepsake book. Today's story is a suspenseful tale set in Russian airspace far from our writer's home. The author of today's story is here to tell us about this truly unnerving experience. But before we talk to him, we're going to hear Sam's story as read by voice actor Daniel Molina as Sam answers the question, what's the scariest thing that's ever happened to you? I'm a lot of different things. An environmental engineer who's traveled the world a Vietnam veteran whose love of science may have saved his life, a family man married to his true love. I was even part of the team that brought about the first pedal-powered flight across the English Channel. So when I'm asked about interesting or strange life experiences, I have quite the stash to choose from. But this one certainly stands out. In the 1990s, I started taking on environmental health and safety positions out of state. These were rotational assignments, so thankfully, I didn't have to move to far-off work locations, but I did have to travel quite a lot, and it usually required me to spend much more time working out in the field than at home with my family. My first assignment was up in Alaska, followed by Venezuela, where I worked with a group of oil companies on a heavy oil development plan. My final assignment brought me to Kazakhstan. I was tasked to help develop an oil field in the north near the Russian border. Bear in mind that Kazakhstan is nearly halfway around the world. There's a 12-hour time difference between my home in California and the oil field site near Aksai, Kazakhstan. To get there took me a full 24 hours of travel. I would fly from Bakersfield to LA, then from LA to London, Then I'd taxi from London to Stansted, where we hopped onto a chartered airplane, which some would describe as a cattle truck with wings. The charter plane would fly us all the way to Uralsk, Kazakhstan. Even after arriving in northern Kazakhstan, we'd still have a two-hour bus ride to Aksai, where the company had a camp set up for the employees. Our team would try to get some sleep during the long journey since we were expected to put in a full day's work once we arrived at the work site in the morning. With a few work trips to Kazakhstan under my belt, I knew the drill and cozied up for some sleep on the plane. The first two flights were uneventful. On our charter flight to Kazakhstan, I was fortunate to get a window seat, making it easier to sleep leaning against the window. The weather wasn't the greatest, though. After takeoff, we ran into heavy rain and lightning. At one point, it looked like the plane took a lightning strike, but all seemed fine, and I settled in for a good nap. After about six hours, I woke up and glanced out the window. We were still flying through the rain. Suddenly, as I watched the cloudy darkness, something caught my eye. It looked like streaks of lightning streaming in our direction, but this wasn't normal lightning. It had a strange orange glow to it and appeared to be small individual streaks and I could easily follow their flight path near our plane. I couldn't comprehend what I was looking at. 
A couple minutes later, the pilot alerted us over the intercom that we needed to make an unscheduled stop outside Moscow. That's when it occurred to me. It wasn't lightning I'd seen, but the visible streaks caused by tracer rounds. My experience firing machine guns with tracer rounds back in basic training led me to believe these rounds had likely been fired by a Russian MiG, forcing the attention of our pilots. After we landed, the captain told us we had to disembark. We would be given a ride to a nearby aircraft hangar. Everyone was confused about what was going on. We didn't panic, but this change in plans was deeply unsettling. I chose not to share the fact that I had seen tracer rounds. After stepping off the plane, I noticed military guards armed with what looks like AK-47s. They took us all to an empty hangar and posted guards to watch us. There was no bedding or food or water. We didn't understand why this was happening or what was in store for us. Hours went by. Some of our high-level supervisors had cell phones with them, but there was no cell service. They were unable to contact anyone. Our pilots were nowhere to be seen, which really concerned us. There were a few Kazakh men among us who were able to talk some of the guards into bringing us water. Our confinement in the hangar continued hour by hour without explanation. If you've ever been in a potentially life-threatening situation like this, you know it inspires some serious reflection. I thought of my family at home in California, unaware of my situation. How did the son of dirt-poor farm laborers end up here, in a plane hangar in Russia, awaiting God knows what? My grandparents and great-grandparents on both sides of my family were farm workers who never had the chance to break out of poverty. My parents grew up in similar circumstances. To paint a picture for you, my parents' first home after getting married was a simple tent house in White City, New Mexico. Over time, Dad was able to add wooden walls and a proper roof. I remember Mom washing clothes in a tub heated over a fire in the back of the house. And for heat and cooking, we used wood-burning stoves. My childhood in the 1950s was modest, but there was one very important distinction between my parents and their parents. My mom and dad understood the importance of schooling in getting ahead in society. Their life's work was doing everything possible to allow my sister and I to get a solid education. Honestly, I'm not sure how they managed it, but they were able to send both Sally and I to St. Edward's Elementary School, the best Catholic grade school in Carlsbad, attended by the well-off Catholic kids of the area. Even though there was another Catholic school nearby with mainly Hispanic students, for some reason, we were sent to the so-called white school. It wasn't easy for me and my sister being of Mexican descent at St. Edward's, but we survived. Our strength came in part from our parents, both very strong and bright people. Dad had the phenomenal ability to figure out mechanical systems, teaching himself how to build and repair countless items. With only a second grade education, he also taught himself to read and write. Mom spoke only Spanish, but was a smart woman who navigated English nonetheless. She was proud to be Mexican and always carried around her green card, even into old age. Just before I turned 12, we moved to Santa Ana, California, seeking better wages for my parents. As a teenager, the more I learned, the more I loved science. 
I didn't have the resources most other kids had, but the one thing I did have was the desire to learn and to do well. In high school, I found myself in the top classes with many of the top level students. They outperformed me in English, but I made up for it by excelling in science and advanced mathematics. I worked my way through and excelled in my community college. And not long after, I was drafted into the military. My knowledge and experience in science and math helped place me in a more favorable position in the artillery upon arrival in Vietnam. After my service in Vietnam, I graduated from Cal State Bakersfield with my degree in chemistry and later earned a master's degree from USC in environmental engineering. It was my environmental engineering degree that helped me build my career at a handful of big name oil companies. It allowed me to work and travel to vastly different parts of the world and enjoy numerous experiences, some riskier than others. It also led me to find the love of my life and marry Rory in 1991, which was the icing on the cake. From a family of farm laborers that were literally dirt poor, and as a result of my education and certainly the grace of God, I was able to break the family cycle and achieve the American dream. I was, and still am, so grateful for the circumstances of my life and to be surrounded with so much love. Movement from the guards pulled me from my thoughts and back to that plane hangar in Russia. Words and nods were exchanged, and there was a wave of activity in the hangar as the message was passed out to us that we could board our plane again and continue our flight to Kazakhstan. It was an indescribable relief after hours of nail-biting uncertainty. Once we arrived at our final destination, we finally learned the cause of our unexpected detour. The chartered airplane we'd traveled in had not received the proper air clearance to fly over Russian territory. The Russians were also not pleased the chartered plane was Italian-owned and not owned by a Russian company. Rumors spread that the Russian authorities insisted that if we wanted to continue our trip, it would have to be in one of their airplanes. To this day, I'm not sure what kind of deal got us out of Russia. I can only imagine that it involved a good sum of money. But whatever arrangement was made, I was grateful, and I considered us fortunate to get out of Moscow in such a relatively short period of time. Back home, half a world away, my wife Rory was alarmed she hadn't heard from me when I was expected in Kazakhstan. She tried calling the company several times, but no one was able to give her any information about my whereabouts. To understand the full extent of my wife's panic, I need to explain that this entire event took place just weeks after the attacks of 9-11. She had no idea what may have happened to me or whether I was a victim of another act of terrorism. Adding to her concern, only a few weeks earlier, a Siberian passenger plane was shot down over the Black Sea by a surface-to-air missile. Finally, 18 long hours after my expected arrival time, I was able to make contact with Rory and let her know what had happened with the flight. Not surprisingly, my dramatic story prompted a frank discussion with her about my future involvement with this work assignment. She put her foot down, and she was right. I let the company know I was not returning the following month. The amount of stress that job caused Rory and my family was certainly not 
worth it. Those hours held in the hangar near Moscow brought my family, past and present, into much clearer focus for me. And I knew then how important it was that our family stay together. They were my American dream. Sam, thank you so much for talking to us today and for sharing your story. So your first international assignment was in Venezuela, and the next one was in Kazakhstan, where you're headed in this story. Yeah, it's halfway around the world, just about seemingly, or at least 12 time zones. (laughs) You know, we'd never really kind of thought there would be necessarily any problem, but on that particular occasion, you know, Rory never got a call back from me because I, I'd call when I'd got there. You know, I, I'd uh, I'd call her and uh, tell her, "Hey, I'm here. I'm okay." But that particular trip, I didn't call, and she was getting worried, and <laughs> you know, she didn't know what was going on or what to do or anything like that. So she was definitely concerned. Probably we should have thought, you know, some kind of contingency things. We hadn't really planned on it. I'm sure she was terrified, although thankfully, obviously everything ended up okay. What did you do to pass the time when you were being held in that hangar? Well, there wasn't really much to do. I mean, there weren't, I mean, it was just a hangar. It was a bare floor. I mean, there wasn't like any food or drinks or anything like that. So we just kind of, we couldn't really do much. I mean, there were guards out there, you know, we didn't want to mess with them, you know. I guess everybody was kind of wondering what was going to happen, of course, because we had no idea how long we were going to be there or what. If they would have wanted to kind of do something pretty drastic, they probably would have shot us down. So they just wanted to make a statement. Kind of figured, well, they'll sort it out, I guess. So while you were in the hangar, you spent some time thinking about your family and all that they did to help you get to where you are today. How would you describe them? Definitely hardworking, compassionate, faithful to their religion. You know, they were uneducated. Mom never really went to school, and and dad only went probably to the second grade. So they were not educated, but dad was a, had a gift. I mean, he was very mechanically minded. He could fix anything. Give him a radio. He could fix it. I don't know how. But, you know, TV said, oh, no problem. We'll just pull these tubes out, check them, and, you know, get that thing working again. Mom, she never really had a lot. So what she had, she took care of. And our our house was sparkling clean all the time. She was a, a good mom, loving, good to dad. And my parents were great parents, I think. I was very fortunate. So I understand that you received some troubling health news this year. Would you be willing to share a little bit about that? Last year that I went in for like a a CT scan, you know, it came back and said, hey, you have IPF, pulmonary fibrosis. I I never heard of it. I said, what is that? And so you kind of look it up and it says, okay, you got a life expectancy of three to seven years or something like that. I said, oh, okay, (laughs) you know. Uh, is that it? I heard something about there's a, uh, a medication you can take that kind of will maybe extend your lifespan. But that medication is like $12,000 a year, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's, or it's 11800 you know. So, and it was really funny. I don't know funny is the word, but I was going to tell Rory that 
I didn't think that that was something we should afford. And I was just talking to her. It was early in the morning. She was still in bed. And I kind of said, you know, honey, uh, I want to talk about it. And then the phone rang. And it was the Optum Pharmacy and says, hey, we're going to offer you this medication. And all it's going to cost you is shipping $10 a month. What? <laughs> Only $10 a month. I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> like I say, things could, could be better, but they're not terrible, I guess. So, you know, the, and the way I, I look at it is, well, we're all terminal. I'm just a little more terminal than others. What a positive perspective, Sam. I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. So, Sam, how did you get started with StoryWorth? My son, Ryan, and his wife, Jessica, they decided to give me something on Father's Day. And they gave me a subscription to StoryWorth. I was whoa, what is that? You know? <laughs> okay. So, they send me a question every week. Now, I'm up to, I think, question number 69. I mean, it's... I think a great way to uh, kind of think about things, you know, because normally you don't really uh, sit down and think about why or how or who or when and where and put it down on paper, you know. So, and this has been a really fantastic way to kind of work it out and think about it and think about certain things that were maybe not that great or not that fun, but, you know, you put it on paper. And I, that's why I think it's a, a really great thing to do. Really highly recommend it for everybody. You know, that I don't consider myself a writer, but, you know, I think everybody can, can at least tell their story some way or another. Kind of figure that this is a, an excellent way to pass on my life experiences to grandkids and great-grandkids who never really got to know, will never get to know their grandfather. I eventually will definitely get the book published, I guess. I was thinking, I don't know if I want to, I'll just maybe wait till I'm at story 100 or... That's a lot of stories. I'm so glad you're enjoying the process. Sam, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. I know that you've been busy packing. Where are you going? We plan on going down to LAX and taking a flight to Fort Lauderdale and off to the Western Caribbean on Wednesday. Oh, this is our 30th wedding anniversary. So it'll be on the 15th, and we, but we have an anniversary type thing all lined up, you know, on the boat. And so that, that should be good. Roy has a nice dress, and I'll take my my tux and everything else, and we're going to uh, hopefully do it right. <laughs> you know? Thanks for joining us today. If you want to get started writing your life stories or want to give the gift of StoryWorth to a loved one, head over to storyworth.com slash podcast. In our next episode... Things change. Stuff happens to you. Not always pleasant. Whatever it might be, maybe you're feeling sad or depressed and you can give into it for a while, but um, you've got to figure out some way to shake it off. One woman's journey through the ups and downs of single motherhood. StoryWorth is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, hosted by me, Krista Baum, and produced by Hannah Ray Leach. We get production help from Jill Granberg and our mix engineer is Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time.